0: list of what the camera person enables by Kristen Johnson I ask for trust cooperation and permission without knowing where the experience will lead the subject I can and will leave a place a situation a problem but the people I interview cannot The work offers the interviewer access and a reason to stay in a world not my own. A sense of invincibility, invisibility, suspension of time, emotional connection. I traffic and hope without the ability to know what will happen in the future. The work offers the subject a chance to speak of things they have never spoken of, and say things they never expected to say. An invitation to think of a future when they will no longer be alive, but what they say and do will be preserved in another form. The opportunity to see oneself from a different perspective. A chance to see themselves as subjects worthy of time. attention. The work offers the subjects the creation of an image of self, the distributions of which they cannot control on a global scale in perpetuity. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I heard that little piece from uh, Come On, Come On, a film starring Joaquin Phoenix. And I loved it, and I saved it, <laughs> and I knew that there would be an appropriate time to play it and read it on the podcast. And this episode that you're about to hear with Monica Guzman seems like the perfect opportunity. I am in Athens, sitting on the floor of a small apartment on a pillow, drinking some coffee. I haven't had coffee in a couple weeks. I gave it up, but I really wanted it this morning. So I'm sitting here with my coffee. This is the first thing I'm doing this morning. So my voice might be a little shaky. I have spent the last week dancing. Uh, Came here to Athens really for the sole purpose of participating in a program called Contact Beyond Contact, which is basically a dance and healing modality created by my teacher Van and his organization, Unity Space. I'll put a link um, so you can learn more about this in the episode description. And it uses multiple forms of movement, contact improv, Authentic movement passing through, as well as principles from a ton of different modalities, yoga, qigong, etc., uh, to create a an embodied physical practice that helps us transform things about ourselves and see ourselves psychologically and the world around us, the collective in new ways. And I've been looking forward to this for a while. We, I uh We decided we would come here in March. It actually really shifted our entire trip. We were going to go back to the U.S. in May. And then sometime around March, I saw that this program was being offered in Athens in mid-August and convinced Chris that we should just stay abroad so I could do this, Um, which has been a lot. It was a lot to keep traveling, but I'm so, so grateful, uh, not just for being able to participate in this program, but also for the experiences that we had between May and August that we wouldn't have had otherwise, namely going to um, Tanzania and to Georgia. And it's it's nice to be releasing this episode today um, in conjunction with being right in the middle of this experience that I'm having with dance, because this practice is all about connection and being in contact with others and using that contact and that connection to be in better contact and connection with ourselves. Which is, of course, also why I chose to read that passage by Kristen Johnson in this episode. I feel like it spoke so beautifully to what I try to do with this podcast. I'm not a camera person. I guess I'm a podcast person, a microphone person. Um, But I feel like it really presented in such a beautiful way what it's like to ask questions of someone who you don't know and listen to what they say, which thereby creates a mirror to ourselves, just like the program I'm doing, Contact Beyond Contact. And it's been really profound in that sense. Um, Of course, you know, I talk about the importance of community and allowing people to be in our lives who can mirror us and trigger us and It's really being validated by this practice, I think. You know, if you sort of take all the context and the specificities of a situation, right? Let's, for example, boundaries. So you're trying to set a boundary with a friend and they're quite convincing and you're a people pleaser and they ask you to do something and you say, yes, even though you don't have the time and you don't have the space and you don't have the energy, right? Like that's the sort of macro, um, context in which that situation is occurring. But if you take all of that away, if you take the friend away, if you take the request away, if you take the, the yes and no away and you just leave the energy You know, what does it feel like to be standing in one place, firm in your body, and have someone try to move you? What does it feel like to actually not respond to their request? What does it actually feel like energetically to say no? I think I probably mentioned when I was in Thailand over the winter, I had this experience. It was sort of the first time I had Um, done contact improv. Contact beyond contact is a bit different that. It takes principles of contact improv and use them, uses them as tools as opposed to having it be like the practice. Um, But one thing that I noticed when I did um, contact improv in Thailand was that we were doing all sorts of exercises like this, that to me felt incredibly metaphorical and symbolic of um, everything in life. And I had this moment, we were actually like in the middle of the dance. And I think we were doing an exercise that was about like sharing energy or at least like creating an energy field around us, sort of putting our hands in front of us and creating this um, round sort of circle, uh, sphere, is what it was called in front of us. And then um, playing with what that felt like and then playing with what it felt like to combine our sphere with someone else's sphere and then combine our sphere with the whole group's sphere. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh my God, this is such an amazing metaphor for life. And then, sort of simultaneously, right after that, I thought, well, wait a second, what if life is actually the metaphor for this, right? (laughs) Because this is what exists at all times. The energy is what exists at all times. The sort of liminal space between two people, between two things, between us and the environment. This exists at all times, outside of the context, outside of the words, outside of the actual relationships. Um, and this is something that I'm really excited to be able to explore in more depth in this practice. And yeah, it's been fascinating. I, I, I feel like this practice, which I'm really excited to share with you guys, I, I sort of often enroll in things and take courses, not really knowing if I'm actually going to like facilitate them in the future. Like when I enrolled in my astrology apprenticeship, I didn't really want to become an astrologer. Um, And I have found ways to offer that and to share that knowledge with um, you guys, with the community. Um, Anyway, I took this course not really knowing what I wanted to do with it, but I really do feel called to practice it and expand upon it and share it with all of you. And it's just been quite nice, actually, because while this practice on the one hand, I think can... Um, bring your awareness to things you've never thought about or um, considered before. It sort of brings things up like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, I say yes. I don't have very many boundaries in relationships. And through this exercise, I've recognized that. And I'm having some of those, but what I'm also having is actually this really incredible sense of validation because I think I'm a pretty intellectual, analytical person, And I think about ideas a lot. And I write about ideas and I talk about ideas. Like my whole life is words and ideas and intellectual expression. And I really wanted to take this course to like complete the circle and make sure that I was also including the the tangible and the physical and the embodied sense of my ideas. And so it's been incredibly validating to see and feel that happen. I'll give you another example. So I have always talked about, especially recently, especially because I have this platform and I feel like people come into my life, um, a lot of women specifically, who are like, you're cool, I want to learn from you and you talk about really interesting ideas and and I love this and I, I appreciate and honor being put in that role. Um, and I also feel like I've, I've really committed myself to working on relationships with women in my life at this point in my life, which I don't think was a big focus of my life in the past. I didn't really know how to interact with women. And I think most of that was as a result of not really being in contact with or knowing the right ones. I always felt very different from women or just misunderstood. Um, so I have these women in my life and I, I always say like, I feel like I can trust people so much more, not just women, people in general, but my my framework has often been women. I can trust them so much more when I know they know how to say no. Right? Like I know that they have a sense of integrity and I know that they're capable of of challenging me and asking questions if they don't understand something. That I don't run the risk of influencing them to the point where they're just copying me because they see me do something as an example and they want to do it or they think it's cool. And so in my friendships with women, I'm I'm always, and of course I'm doing this with other women as well, right? Like I think I'm definitely the kind of person that likes to ask a lot of questions and clarify things. And I wasn't always like this. I was definitely afraid to speak up, I think, in a myriad of ways because I didn't want to challenge people and upset people. But I don't even think that's my nature at all. I think my nature is to expose things and challenge things and point things out. Anyway, so we're in class and we're doing this practice. It was one of the first days and we were working with this concept of saying yes and no. And really to practice like, okay, if someone puts their hand on your shoulder and tries to move you, say no. And so then they have to become creative and they have to think about like, okay, how can I invite them or, or, and allow them to feel invited in a different way. And so instead of trying to move their shoulder, maybe I'm going to walk around their body, put my other hand on their shoulder, put my other hand on their hand and try to move them in that way gently. And I recognized that there were some women that I was dancing with that just kept saying yes to everything. There were no no's, right? And and maybe not even not saying no, but also not really any resistance. And it felt like if I wanted to, I could push them down on the floor or I could like throw them across the room, right? It was just so easy to move them around the room in, in ways that I intended to that I became far less inclined to do anything actually to move them at all. Because it didn't feel complex. It didn't feel safe. And it didn't feel, yeah, like there was any resistance between us. And like that resistance is good. That tension is good. And so it's been this really fascinating, yeah, and honestly validating experience to feel like, okay, yes, like these ideas that I have, these sort of more mind-based concepts that I've experienced and talked about like ad nauseum on this podcast, I'm seeing being exemplified by this purely physical and energetic realm. And that's been so cool. I feel like I'm in this phase of my life. I feel like I always quote Britney Spears. I feel like I've done this on the podcast before, but I feel like I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. <laughs> Definitely more woman than a girl at this point. I'll be 34. Grown-ass woman. Grown-ass-ish woman. Um, but anyway, I feel like I'm, I'm shifting from being more of a child uh, and more of an adolescent into a person with experiences and who's lived many lifetimes already in this one lifetime. And... It's difficult for me to it's been difficult for me to make that adjustment and I crave mentorship and guidance and and a sense of legitimacy from people who are more experienced than me and who I feel like know what's up in a way that I don't and I've been trying to lean more into embodying my own experience and my own capacity for leadership, and feeling like I actually have a right to be there. And I feel like this practice doing contact beyond contact has been quite helpful in that respect. And I'm sharing all of this, not necessarily to pat my own back um, in front of all of you, Uh, but also partially to do that, because I feel like the people who listen to this podcast, I know you're of all ages, but I think generally, most of you are millennials. And our generations coming of age at this point. And I think I'm sure a lot of you have had this experience of feeling like, do I have a right to step o- step into myself and to take ownership of that and be accountable for myself and have agency in my own? adulthood and selfhood. And this doesn't mean that we pretend we know everything, but to sort of make sure we're keeping the balance between learning and growing and being honest about what we don't know and not pretending we know more than we do, but also being like, fuck yeah, like, okay, these ideas are valid. I'm valid This is how I feel, this is what I've experienced, and I have something to share in that respect. So I just wanted to give voice to that process, to be like vulnerable in my own transition and to hopefully give permission to all of you to do the same. So this conversation (laughs) uh, is a conversation that I had with Monica Guzman, Uh, I had it a few weeks ago, and this conversation is all about the importance of connection and not just connection that feels good and connection that validates us and connection that makes us feel safe, Um, but actually maintaining curiosity and in situations that make us feel uncomfortable with people that make us feel uncomfortable or unsafe or who trigger us. And obviously a big, big, big component of this podcast is my belief that triggers are beautiful invitations to explore something about ourselves. And if we put ourselves in a walled off safe space box, which is unfortunately something I think our generation has come to believe is like the right way to go is actually incredibly limiting and prevents growth, which isn't to say that we don't need safety, right? Um, Nuance. Uh, We do need safety and we do need to feel like we have some degree of like a solid piece of earth to stand on in order to be triggered in a way that's gonna be productive. But we can't pick one over the other because a lack of challenge is a lack of growth. And so Monica's context for exploring all of this is political and through the lens of being a journalist. And obviously, we don't have to look very hard, especially those of us who are from America or live in America, to know that we are in insanely, insanely divided times. This is incredibly obvious. It's extremely omnipresent and it's getting worse in my opinion. And the more uh, heated debates that we have around certain topics like abortion and um, guns, for example, I th- the more we become divided, the more we become antagonistic toward those who disagree with us. Because understandably, it's incredibly difficult to understand how someone could feel The quote opposite of us. We have so much life experience and so much context and so much subjectivity and so much bias in our own opinion that we can't fathom how anyone else could have an opposing opinion unless they're evil or bad or undeserving of existing or having their opinion. They're just wrong. And we think that if only they could have the information we have, if only I could educate them, that they would see things the way I see them. But that's just not true. That's just not how life works. And so Moni wrote this whole book called I Never Thought of It That Way, which is about leaning into these complex topics that we can't understand where other people are coming from by way of curiosity. And I feel like that's just that idea is like triggering in and of itself, right? Like, why should I talk to someone that doesn't agree with me about abortion? Why should I talk to somebody or sympathize or empathize or try to understand someone that doesn't want to outlaw guns in the way that I do? Because these horrible things are happening. Why should I give them the time of day? I get that. I understand that. But it's urgent that we do that. (laughs) You know, one thing I have been thinking about a lot and I'm writing a piece about for Substack right now, which you can subscribe to at anyakots.substack.com. Shameless plug is that I think in America we have a bit of like historical amnesia, right? I'm spending time in Georgia and Spain specifically where independence from fascism or just independence from occupation was gained relatively recently in history. And there are still people alive who knew, who experienced firsthand a civil war. Um, there's a bit less of a desire to increase these divisions to the point of danger, more danger than we have at the moment. I feel like there's this urgency (laughs) that's being presented to us now where we're like being presented with this fork in the road that we can take these really heated topics that make us react in a really triggered way And we can go the path of division or we can really, you know, plant our feet in the ground and take one step after the other to go on the path of curiosity and nuance and to try as best we can, if not just to understand, at least try to understand, you know, you don't have to get there necessarily because this division stuff, this rugged individualistic stuff something that Stephen Jenkinson calls a form of fracking to any hope we have at collective or communal understanding worldwide, but specifically in America. And I so relate to that and buy into that. I really do think that these silos that we put ourselves into are incredibly dangerous and maybe we can't see that danger right now and we just want to like feel validated in our anger and our hatred and our lack of understanding toward the other and thereby also like bonding with the other people who agree with us because we're so starved for community (laughs) but it can get worse than it is it has over and over historically we just don't remember and we feel so good about ourselves in finding other people to validate our opinions all the time, that we're not conscious of how we are contributing to that fracking, how we are contributing to literally tearing apart a foundation that we need. And I know it can feel like relatively airy-fairy and wooey, to be like, love and connection is what we need the most. And <laughs> I know i felt that before. And obviously, if that's all we have, that's not good, right? Like, my point isn't to say that we need to overcome these differences or these challenges in order to, like, form some sort of one-brained utopia. That's not possible, We can have love and we can have connection and we can have understanding within disagreements and within difference. Like everything is paradoxical, you guys. (laughs) And, And that is where the actual love comes from and the appreciation comes from. It's like, holy shit, like this world is full of beautiful people who are different from me and who think differently, and who feel differently, and who have had different experiences than me. And of course, they're going to have different opinions than I have. And these are beautiful opportunities to learn more about other people, but then also learn more about ourselves, which I guess takes me full circle now that I've been blabbing on for like half an hour. We need people to push up against us. We need to become cognizant of our contact with others and with the world because that's how we learn more about ourselves. The other night I was dancing alone in my apartment after class and just dancing as I normally do alone in a room in a kitchen actually more accurately. And we are doing all these practices in class, like, you know, leading each other, following each other, doing something called space in between, where we're not actually touching each other, but we're sort of inviting someone to move through subtle movements in ourselves and sort of rolling, you know, rolling our arm on someone else, rolling our arm on someone's body or their arm and moving in, in conjunction with one another. And so I was just dancing, and all of a sudden, as I was dancing, I recognized that actually I could do some of these practices on myself, right? Maybe I can't pull myself across the room, but I could certainly do this practice of space in between and see one hand magnetized through space by the other. I could certainly roll my limbs on other limbs. And so once again, (laughs) a beautiful metaphor emerged, which was by being in contact with others, By learning about others, by being in contact with them, by letting myself be seen by others and sensed by others, I can actually see and sense myself more clearly. And I started to integrate these practices into my dance, which I feel like opened up so many possibilities that I wasn't doing before. Like I'm always quite cognizant of the fact that I like repeat movements (laughs) in dancing right and this is also a metaphor like how do we just like repeat our routine repeat our opinions we're just doing the same thing our patterns over and over and over again and so this practice of connection of connecting with others was physically tangibly allowing me to connect with myself in greater ways and so whether we're speaking about just the purely energetic level or the macro level of all of these different ways that we're interacting and connecting with each other. I feel this is profoundly important and meaningful. So on that note, I would love for you to hear my conversation with Moni. (laughs) I'm going to play you in with Back to You by Benjamin Gordon, which I don't think needs an introduction. I think you will understand why I'm playing it. And let's see, do I have anything else to say? Any housekeeping? Yes, I do. Um, As always, if you want to subscribe to the podcast on Substack, you are welcome. I hereby invite you to Substack. Substack is really cool. I moved from Patreon to Substack because people can subscribe to Substack for free, unlike Patreon. So you can get access to my writing um, and lots of other cool stuff that I release on Substack. Plus you can actually comment on episodes. So there are people discussing the episode in real time, which is something we couldn't do before I moved to Substack, right? So you just like get the episode in your streaming app. Okay, cool, you have some thoughts about it, but there's no way to interact with me about it. And now there is. And you also get emails when I release a new episode or release a new post. So you can listen to it and comment right away. And it's really awesome. I'm really, um, I'm feeling really grateful to be able to connect with all of you more through that platform. Um, AnyaKotz.Substack.com is where you can subscribe to that. Again, everything is free. However, if you have the means to donate, it's $5 a month, which is pretty cheap. And you can basically think about it like public radio. I don't have sponsorships or ads on this podcast. And so the only way that I can make money on it is through your donations. And your donations are not only sending out a message to the world that it's important to support projects, um, especially forms of creativity that are pretty difficult to make money off of, like art projects. I consider this my little art project. Um, So you basically do become a patron of this project, uh, both the podcast and the writing and other offerings I release, like workshops and the book club and playlists and lots of good things. Um, but you're also subsidizing people who might not be able to afford it. So I'm really grateful for whatever way you decide is right for you to engage with this project and the work that I put out in the world. Um, two spots I believe are still open for the workshop that I am co-facilitating with Chris Ryan, um, and Cameron and Malene Shane in Montana in September, Mm -hmm. um, they bought a new tent, basically, and there are two spots. So we are, the four of us, facilitating a workshop, a retreat called The Sex at Dawn Retreat, after Chris's book. And it's going to be all about sexuality and relationships. It's really for everyone. If you're single, if you're not single, everyone is welcome. Uh, Cameron and Mullane, who are movement specialists and uh, very skilled in a multitude of ways, um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and this practice that Cameron created called Budokan. They do yoga practices like lots of like authentic uh, movements, like crawling patterns and stuff. So they're going to be focused on the purely physical stuff, although nothing is purely physical, is it? Um, and Chris is going to be doing more of the sort of intellectual analytical piece. And then I am hoping to bridge the gap between those. So speaking about polarity, speaking about holding space for others and allowing us, allowing ourselves to be held by others, um, and also talking about embodied communication. So a lot of the practices that I'm learning in Contact Beyond Contact will show up this summer in Montana. So if you want to sign up, it is September 7th to September 11th in Whitefish, Montana, And the link with all the information is budokon, which is B-U-D-O-K-O-N.com slash events dash sex dash at dash dawn. com slash events sex at dawn. I will put a link in the description um, as well in case all those dashes and slashes are difficult to remember. Um... Yeah. If you like the music on this podcast, you can subscribe to my Spotify. I have a ton of playlists. One of them is all the music I have ever played on A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World in the last three and a half years. Um, But I also have tons of additional playlists that used to only go to patrons, paid patrons, but now go to everyone. So lots of different stuff on there. I have a tea and writing and meditation playlist and a playlist that I just released called Moving You, Moving Me, which is all songs that I've been dancing to recently. So I welcome you to all of that, to my world, and invite you in. And I'm grateful that you're here, (laughs) whether you've been here for a while or you're new. Um, Thank you for spending this time with me. Okay, enjoy this song, enjoy this conversation, and I will catch you on the other side. Live, I am here. I think the person who reached out to me referred to you as Moni. Is that what you like to be called?
1: Instead oh, uh, Moni is actually better in the Moni. two syllable. Moni, oh. Monica. If we're speaking Moni. Spanish, Monica cool. is appropriate. Otherwise, <laughs> perfect. We're, yeah, <laughs> we're good. Well, I'm
0: here with Moni, um, and I have to say. I think I've gotten—I mean—a countless number of people who have reached out to me pitching guests for my podcast over the past three years, and you are literally the first person who I said yes to out of these pitches because they're like never remotely oh, <laughs> viable for the topic of my podcast. But I, and I, so I was like surprised myself because I was like, "Oh my god, actually, this sounds amazing!" Yes. Um. So congratulations. Hooray! Like a feat. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a distinction um, I'm proud of.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you. I I read your book. Uh, I finished reading it today, so it feels very fresh in my mind. Um, And yeah, this podcast was actually very much created for many reasons, but one of which was following the 2016 election, um, which I think was a big turning point for all of us, obviously. Um, But I think unlike some people who may have felt like more angry and more polarized which to some extent I felt as well um what I was most frustrated about was the lack of nuanced conversation Mm -hmm. um and the lack of like hearing my voice amidst this like pool of division Mm -hmm. um so this is I think your book is very much in the spirit of the podcast so I'm really excited to to chat with you
1: yeah. Um, I could have said the same things about my yeah. reaction. So, yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd love to hear more about that, actually, because I know you sort of opened the book with the 2016 election. And um, I'm curious to hear, like, what what was your reaction? What, what, what did that um, motivate you or inspire you to do more of or do less of? Like, where were you at with all of that at the time?
1: Yeah. I mean, like a lot of people, I had a nuanced reaction with many layers. <laughs> uh, but, uh, the, you know, the, the loudest was one that I held in common with a lot of my fellow liberals in Seattle, which was, you know, a bit of panic and, and anxiety and, and serious concerns about the country, the likes of which I had never had before, uh, yeah. with any election. And that was layered with you know, having been a journalist my whole career, I take very seriously the ability for all of us to understand each other, understand what's happening. When things get complicated, when things get anxiety inducing, we have to ramp up our ability to get the context and understand things, not ramp up the anxiety, you know, without a good balance of You know, well, hang on. Can can we see where everybody's coming from here? It felt Mm. like, in some ways, it felt like a disaster, but a very different one because it was a disaster of our own making. It was citizens voting and making a decision that ended up going in a direction that people like me did not expect. And so what do we do with that? And so I looked around and I saw in the months following the anxiety and the panic play out you know, in good ways, but in a, it mostly in simplifying, flattening ways. So it brought mm-hmm. me back to that same concern you were talking about. I looked around and I thought, wait a minute, I thought we were a bit smarter than this. Like, I, 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 I get why we're worried. I don't get why we're this certain about people who made a different decision, as if we know them when we don't. Right.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like, the, to me, there was something about the experience that, while it felt like a shock, there was also this sort of, like, guttural <laughs> instinct that, like, this was only kind of, like, a symptom of a larger problem, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, this wasn't actually the problem, but the, mm-hmm. there, the problem was sort of there all along, and this was kind of, like, the wake-up call.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and... And of course you are particularly, I think, uniquely suited uh, to, or maybe not, maybe you don't feel that way, but I think given your family and um, given uh, the sort of unique situation of your views being different from your parents, but you guys still talk, Mm -hmm. um, that you, do you feel like that's like a luxury to some extent and i'd love for you to talk a little mm. bit more about that too like what what is that uniqueness for you um that you're sort of able to see this division in a
1: yeah way. so me and my parents are mexican immigrants and it we became citizens in the year 2000 i was 17 and i was automatically naturalized when my parents studied up for the citizenship test and i remember all that and they were really really excited and really proud and they immediately voted republican that election cycle and i was 17 right i was still figuring out my own politics and but it wasn't going to be republican i knew that and i couldn't believe that my pa- <laughs> i couldn't believe that my parents and i were so different and it's silly thinking back on it now because you know throughout the 90s we had debated you know welfare and guns and all kinds of stuff and i should i should have known we have in our family a pretty open culture of just sharing what we think. And so that spilled right into our political conversations. So throughout you know, 2004, 2008, all these presidential elections, we were always able, able to talk about why we were making completely different choices. But then the 2015 election, the 2016 election came and the campaign in 2015 was just a completely new challenge. Uh, and it got, it got personal. It got really raw. You know, I would say things to my mom, like you didn't raise me to respect a person like that. How could you vote for him? What, what is going on? Right. And, uh, and so those questions got pretty intense and her answers got pretty intense, but they were honest and, I, you know, I would ask more questions and she would ask me questions back. And then with my dad as well, they had different reasons for voting for Trump and, and, and being, you know, good and happy with the decision. So we really did get to a place where I understood their choice, uh, and and it added up and it came from my understanding of who they were, which is a pretty comprehensive understanding built over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And there we are. And in 2020, they voted for Trump again. Which to many of my friends was very surprising. Like, Tell me that your parents, you know, figured it out, right? And then talking yeah. with you, you've changed their minds. I'm like, that's not. That's not how this works, y'all. Like, yeah. this is not. People think these things are so simple and cut and dry. You go on Twitter and social media, and it seems that way. That, you know, you read a meme and you go, oh, of course, <laughs> and it just changes everything. But that's that's yeah. just not how it works. Plus, you know, you were saying before. You know, the 2016 showed us like it was a symptom of a larger problem and all of that. But to the many people who I know who now who are conservative and voted for Trump, the problem that liberals see is not the problem that they see. And so even that is something to remain uncertain about uh and right. do a, and, and and explore with more nuance. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think the problem I was referring to was not necessarily a political one, but more a, we don't understand each other.
1: Yes, yes. I think on that (laughs) Um, one, everyone's agreed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, there was this shock that all of these people wanted him to be president and could vote for him, which, of course, like, didn't happen out of thin air, or, you know, in some kind of vacuum that existed. And I think, obviously part of why we didn't know is because, as your book explains, we are physically and ideologically divided um, in ways that we can't really see or hear each other accurately. Is that mm-hmm. correct?
1: Yes, exactly. We're we're so divided, we're blinded. We think of our divisions in a lot of ways, but one of the ways I, I wish that we would think about it much more is, is th- th- that when we break apart the the things that stitch us organically in our relationships it's like it's like we're getting rid of an immunity to oversimplification um, and an Mm. immunity to over vilification of each other Uh, i've thought i've thought of it this way as a journalist i think of truth building as being extremely important and it's a big part of the role of the institution of journalism. It's, it's to, to build truth, to help us see truth. But there's also this very important function of building trust in our society. And and building truth doesn't really work unless you're also making sure that there's enough trust circulating throughout. Mm. And so I've, I've asked myself, if journalism is the truth-building institution, what is our trust-building institution? And the answer I've come up with is There isn't one because it's supposed to just be us. It's supposed to be our relationships and our connections that are organic. It's supposed to be that even though I have friends who are very much like me, I have relatives that are different or I live in a neighborhood that um, where I can have collisions with difference and those Hmm. collisions are a check on whatever I'm hearing from my silos whatever judgments are coming at me unquestioned, I check that with my actual relationships with real people. And it's that that has frayed, I think, so much that it's seriously impaired our ability to maintain a healthy level of trust. So now we're at this point where we are, again, so certain that malevolence motivates a lot of people who disagree with us when it's not true, Mm -hmm. and we have very few opportunities to bit by bit check that and make sure that we don't overbelieve this malevolence theory, right? And so then it's a vicious cycle because the more afraid we are, the more threatened we feel, the more distant we become, which only increases the level of fear and threat. Uh, And so, yeah, a lot of people want to turn to institutions to fix that, and of course we should, but we need we need to begin at home, if you will this yeah. is about this is about recognizing that each of us, no matter how educated or informed we think we are, are living in this world that is stacked against uh like organic webs of trust, and so yeah. we have to do something about that.
0: Yes, um, have you thought at all about? Like, is this a human problem? Is this an American problem? Is this a problem of America right now? Like, I don't know how much you've traveled cross-culturally. I travel quite a bit, and it's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not only to see how other cultures interact with each other, but how they view America in ways that... um, you know, I always assume like everyone hates America, but that is not the case. <laughs> uh, and it's really interesting to see that. So I don't know if you like, is is this something specific to our political system, the the time and place that we're in? Like, have you thought about that at all?
1: Yeah. Oh, what a great question. Uh, yeah, I, I would, I would, I'm getting really curious about your travels and I would want to hear more about that too. <laughs> yeah. uh, I can tell you at least in Mexico where my whole extended family is and they tell me every mm-hmm. day that the divisions there are just as bad, if not worse. We know that Canada Mm. is in a rough spot as well. Europe. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's, it's certainly global. I don't think it's uniquely an American issue. I do think that there are certain parts of the American character and the American culture that uh, have amplified some of these things as someone in media. I think a lot about the role of media and I have these conflicted feelings because I know that media is both the way and the problem you know, <laughs> at the same time. And that maybe is the most, the most frustrating thing. I think um, where, I, where I sit right now, I really do put a lot on media, but I hesitate to be so monolithic about it. Because when I say media, what I really mean is how we communicate. the the channels through which we tend to communicate and how much those channels tend to narrow the full toolbox of human communication in a way that we don't even really notice, but that severely constrains our ability to approach conversations in a healthy way. Um, in, in a way that we can really hear each other, it makes it that much harder to listen. And so it's like, it's hard to blame each individual person for this. We're, this is the way we communicate now right in on social media and via text message and a lot gets done but a lot gets lost um you know and and we're in line for coffee but we're looking at our phones we're not talking to the next person next to us in line um and then the pandemic on top of everything so so i do think there's something (laughs) about (laughs) there's something about media um there is something about professional media and the way the stories get told and i know because i'm i've been there i know That the incentives are not toward good, robust, calm comprehension. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, the the incentives are toward attention. We know this. And attention is is garnered a lot more cheaply in an industry of organizations that are fighting to survive with emotion. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I talk about a lot of relatively controversial topics on my podcast, or at least again, try to offer nuanced perspectives, which makes them controversial. Um, but it is really fascinating to see how I feel like even, and myself included, like, I think we're all relatively curious by nature if that's a skill that we practice. Mm-hmm. Um, as I know you spoke about in your book, and I think all of us are extremely complex and this, I feel like we're getting fed this rhetoric around, you know, blue and red or pro and con or um, black and white. And then when we're presented with an issue, it's this sort of like you're with us or you're against us thing that I don't even necessarily think is natural. Um, but we're just like on like, I don't know, on auto, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. following the the script or something. Um, Because there's, like, just not, there's not an alternative in many respects.
1: I think you're absolutely Um, right. And right now, two big topics are abortion and guns. And, you know, it, it is, it's the, by far the default approach in all professional media, but, but also largely in how we talk about it is, you know first of all obviously there's high stakes and there's big big swings that have happened in both those issues and mm-hmm. so the people who are concerned are far more concerned right in the in the angle that they're coming from but it it is a tragedy i think i think it's gotten to the point where we almost have forgotten that there is another way that it, well, what if we really yeah. did approach this as all right everybody abortion as we know is a perennially tricky issue we know that good people in our society come down on different sides. We know that it puts good values that we all share into tension with each other. You know, the value of life, the value of living your, living your life the way you want and choosing it, okay, let's do mm-hmm. this, right? And let's ask questions like, all right, who's, who, who's figuring out the creative common ground? Um, what policymakers are actually doing the hard work of deliberating through um, you know, through that division instead of just fighting on one side? Yeah. We don't ask those questions, and we really miss, I think, an opportunity to understand issues at, at this deeply nuanced level. We're also very, very, very anxious, and we want these things solved, and we allow the myth to permeate our stories that this should be solved. If we just did this one thing, then it'd be fine, everybody, I don't know what's going on. It's like, no, yeah. what, no, these issues, they're not not been solved for decades because we're <laughs> stupid. Like, yeah. like, that's not the, that's not the issue. It's, it's that they're putting really good values into tension with each other. And over time, you know, people who are most concerned are really feeling a high sense of threat. Um, and yeah. so we have to work with that. We have to work psychologically with that. Um, yeah. But no, but that's not the game. The, the game is more like, who's going to win the next election cycle? Which in the short term is fine. is great. I mean, we could we could all play out all these issues that way. But we have to understand that as soon as the other side gets power, everything gets undone and we're not going anywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> like, you know.
0: Right. Yeah, and and we're a part of the entire system, I think, whether that be media or otherwise. Like I, I just got so frustrated the other day, uh, because I saw the New York times posted this article about liberal quote, liberal women, leftist women who were anti-abortion. And I was just like, Oh, great. This is wonderful. Like, this is exactly the type of reporting we need. Like, Mm -hmm. here's a woman who I can find a common ground with, on a variety of different issues and then maybe we sort of have differing issues about this one topic but this is such a beautiful Mm -hmm. invitation to learn more about someone who disagrees with you about a topic um and then I made the terrible mistake of Mm. clicking on the comments um and the people you know are like you know way to read the room New York Times and how dare you give these women a voice Mm. and like this is disgusting and yeah I don't know I I feel like I don't know, for me, like the worse it gets as far as the polar- polarization and division is concerned, like the more I feel passionate about curiosity, yeah. um, e- like despite despite the anger and despite the fear, like these issues affect me too, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but I really feel like the, the need for us to like, I don't know, I guess embrace discomfort uh, more becomes more critical ever
1: oh yeah definitely yeah the the easy path is the angry one it's it's the one where you you know continue where you're going and, and feel more certain about where you are but but particularly and chiefly feel more certain that you don't need to uh leave this or that question open that the assumptions that are coming at you are the right ones and and that's it that's all that's all there is to it and so you read and you stay informed in order to uh gain ammo um, for what you already Mm. believe. And, and you, you are outraged when the New York times dares, you know, to, to violate their loyalty to you, the liberal, uh, by challenging you with some surprising profile of people who don't fit the mold because you've Mm. been, you've been fitting the mold because that's what we all have to do now. We have to march. We have to march as soldiers for our group. Um, and that's the way it's gonna to have to be because this is war. And so, of course, nobody wants to see that challenged. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, I, I have to say, I have seen the New York Times in recent months lean exactly into what you're talking about, where we have to inspire curiosity, more curiosity. We, we have to go there. Uh, I think there's a lot more to be done, but the fact that that article was written they knew what the comments would be, trust me. Right, of course. We've of had course. a lot of time with comments. They knew, um, but, but they also knew that that wasn't, I mean, when someone says read the room, they're making the assumption that they are right. to serve that room. Why is right. the New York Times out to serve that room by affirming their ideas? That's, yeah. Let's question that. Let's have a nuanced yeah, conversation yeah. about that. Yeah. Like I think right. the New York Times serves and reads that room better when they absolutely show that room the whole country, <laughs> not just yeah. a mirror image of what they want to see. So, yeah. yeah, everyone has to lean into that a bit more and welcome it. It is, ex- It can be extremely unpleasant the more partisan you are, no question. Uh, and that's why people themselves have to see why this is an important individual journey. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's going to be nothing but resistance and rage to mm. steps that need to be taken.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And all of this stuff, I feel like actually you can draw pretty, um, uh, similar parallels to our personal lives because I feel like at least in my generation, millennial generation, and probably even more so in Gen Z, but this whole concept of like, which is obviously, this is nuanced, but like safe spaces. <laughs> and, oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Wanting, you know, trigger warnings and triggers are bad and mm-hmm. you can't say anything that could make me upset. And it's it's complicated because I feel like in my own individual personal journey, and I think for everyone, like a lot of us do need to learn how to pick people who we feel safe with and to mm-hmm. be in situations in which there is a baseline Comfort and safety, but then to engage challenge and triggers within that space of safety mm-hmm. um, but I feel like that's like taboo to say these days that like we should be triggered. yeah um, <laughs> yeah but yeah,
1: but, but we should and I think we we think of I think in in the dialogue about this, when people imagine getting challenged, they imagine the social media thread that that's the place to go and get right. uncomfortable. No, that, that the social media thread is a really terrible place to try to get nuance. Mm. It's very easy uh, in these online spaces to interact and find and then interact with a different opinion. But because of that, what, what I mentioned earlier, those severe constraints on the human toolbox of communication, uh, these spaces are really, really bad for... Sure, call it safety, right? For 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 entering contexts where you can have a conversation with someone who sees things differently from you and there's a high probability of getting to understanding, of building the kind of resilience in that conversation that it's going to take to unlock each other's stories and, and, and walk each other's path in that way. You, you don't want to do that as a first step. That's not mm-hmm. the place to go. And unfortunately, a lot of people, that's where they go and that's where they... You know, I I went, I tried, this person trolled me. They said these horrible things about me and they DM me horrible things. And obviously they all suck and I'm done. Um, but that's, I mean, what are we doing? We, we know that that's not the place to go. So it's more about each of us, I think really does have places in our own relationships where we could go and lean in, you know, here's the uncle who we know saw things differently on this issue. Here's, you know, I, I, whatever, like, I think guns are wonderful and, you know, here's my niece who just can't stand them, can't believe that I have them. Let's talk about it. Th- those are the places where you want to lean in um, and where you already have maybe a relationship and you can say, hey, I'm, you know, this is going on in the headlines. I know you and I differ on this and maybe we've never talked about it, but do you have any time? Um, I'd, I'd love to ask you some questions. I, I just want to understand. And that's the way to do it. So, yeah, I think we need to be smarter about to get uncomfortable. You don't have to go into the lion's den where things aren't likely to be productive. You know, you can, you can explore the, the the webs of your own life.
0: Do you think there are other ways to create safety too? And that, like, I feel like we've, done this thing where we take our opinions and we develop identities around them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it mm-hmm. isn't just that you disagree with me about this topic. It's that like you disagree with who I am or like you are. Do
1: you, you know. Oh yeah. 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 It's, it's made me very sad to see one particular trend on social media. I was there right at the beginning of Twitter, 2007. It was, it was novel and fun mm. and woo boy, yeah. right? Like things have yeah. gotten really interesting, and complicated. <laughs> uh, but, but it was the trend of how many people's accounts, their names are their beliefs. So they'll put their name mm. or their first name and then it's like hyphen, you know, my cause or whatever. And, and it'll be right there at the level of their name. It, it's literally as, as they're wearing that opinion and that identity. And, um, and I've talked to people about this, and it's it makes total sense. You know, some folks are on these platforms, you know, for certain reasons, and they have issues they care deeply about, and they're connecting with other people who share them, and they're angry at people who don't, and they just don't want to waste their time with people who are going to come and give them grief. And so it's mm-hmm. a way that they that you just kind of billboard it, you you pin it, and you say, this is the kind of person I don't want anything to do with. Um, but you're also sort of saying this is the kind of person that I'm at war with. And so you're kind of inviting, you know, attacks from those people who are already soldiers and then see your profile and go blah. So yeah, putting things at the level of identity, it, it's a, it's a protective move. It's, it's a confidence move. Uh, But it also, I think the cost is that it can, it makes your it can make your world very small because once you put something at the level of identity, people get that signal, I cannot touch this. I cannot, this is the thing I can never talk to so-and-so about. This is the thing that they will never know what I really believe. You know, that if I have a relationship with this person, I can't ask them questions about this thing. And if that really matters to me, there's a way in which they won't see me and I won't see them. And there's a way in which we could check each other's understanding of these beliefs in the broader world, but we're never going to do that because they've made, they've made it, they've put the stake in the ground. That this is, yeah. it, I, you know, beyond this I will not go. And so that's a personal decision that I think a lot of culture has really celebrated over the last several years for good reason. Because it's been this wonderful experiment in expressing identity. And that's made us stronger in a lot of ways. We're seeing a lot of nuance in who we are as Americans that we never saw before and that is important. But we mm-hmm. have to see the cost. We can't just be gung-ho without understanding that it's complicated.
0: Yeah, right. And and not only that, but that like we are not necessarily meant to be the same identity for our entire lives. You know, it's yeah. incredibly self-limiting.
1: You lock, um, yourself. My, yeah, you yeah. lock yourself. Yeah, you lock yourself in a jail. You know. Yeah. And, and you think yeah. you're freeing yourself, but are you? Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I I feel grateful. My father is gay, but he married my mom when he was in his early 20s and this was like he was in New York in the 80s and all Mm -hmm. the gay men were dying and he also couldn't really find any men gay men in their 20s who he Mm -hmm. could have like deep emotional connections with so he's like okay this isn't working like I think I'm bisexual let me try being with a woman and so he married my mom and he had two kids and then ultimately 10 years later he was just like this isn't me like I really tried Mm -hmm. to make this work but um, and it worked for a time and I'm super happy that I had these kids and I experienced all these things, but this isn't me anymore. Um, and I, I've had him on the podcast several times. Uh, Mm -hmm. and something I bring up frequently is that he says like, you know, our identity should be like something like an outfit that we, we -hmm. try on and Mm -hmm. (laughs) maybe it works for a time and then maybe it gets holes in it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I just think it's, it's, it's incredibly, and I get it. Like you said, like I think it's so important for us to feel good about ourselves and feel worthy within whatever identity we claim. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just wish we could find that kind of like level of security and worthiness and things that weren't maybe necessarily so, um, like polarizing politically.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and what a, what an awesome story is it illustrates so much, but we, I think so much of it really is fear of being hurt and, Mm -hmm. um, and you know we see these tools, and we see what we can do, uh, and we see how we can protect ourselves, and and put up put up a wall, and, and 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 put up a guard, and then we're being told also by the world that hey, the more you know yourself, right, the more you stand up for who you are. Like these are wonderful individualistic American beliefs right. that go back and back and back, and they're not just American; they're human. They're great. Um, but you don't want to be locked into into jail by your beliefs today about who you are and what you believe. Um, yeah. I, I, I have the conviction that, yeah, that, that that a life that is really full and meaningful always has to have some open doors. Um, you know, c- closing them is going to feel really good for a minute because you're going to conflate that certainty with confidence, the confidence that you expect of yourself, and that's going to give you a lot of strength. Um, but but again, just just be careful because you do end up over time potentially missing complications that could enrich you um, and that could it, it's it's this whole puzzle right we think of sort of who am i what's going to make me more of who i am what's going to make me less of who i am and then we decide like learning about that or talking to those people less of who i am you know the, the but those people more of who i am it's like what we can't program yeah. this like th- that's not i don't think that's how this works um and and i think we are more scared of spontaneity we have the options of of custom building more of our world, and so why not take it? Why not make decisions? Why not make billboards? Why not fill out the profile with exactly the thing and nail it in? And this inflexibility is 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 hurting us, um, but it's yeah. it's it's built in again to our communication now, um, but it really is hurting us. Yeah,
0: I'd love for you to talk a bit about what you discussed in the book around that our opinions, um, are not random, that our opinions are sort of based on our own experiences. Um, and I also, I was craving in the book, I want to hear more about your parents. Like your Mm -hmm. personal story was so (laughs) interesting to me. And you're like, no one ever, like no one ever asked like why they voted for Trump or not as many people as I'd like. And I was like, but why did they vote for Trump? I was so curious the whole time. (laughs) Um, so I, I wanted you to, just to give you some space to talk about your parents a little bit. And I'm sure there's like a million reasons why they voted for Trump and why they have the beliefs that they do. But what are a couple that maybe stand out to you and make you feel like, Oh yeah, of course this is the decision they made based on their life and their experience.
1: Yeah. So for my mom, she was a pro-life activist when I was in high school. She was a Spanish teacher at my Catholic high school in New Hampshire and not long after she started teaching, she she's just a go-getter. And, you know, she, she just felt so much come from her, from her background, from her moral sense, from her upbringing, from her everything about this particular issue really hurt her. And mm-hmm. so she created the um, Right to Life Club at my school. She brought students down to the annual March for Life, which happens every year in Washington, D.C., And this goes back and back for her. And as we've talked about it, I had made the assumption for a long time that it was really mostly motivated by her Catholic, Mexican Catholic faith. And while I think that that does overlap, she has told me many times, she's even told me like, Mom, Monica, when you talk about, you know, what I think politically, please make sure that you don't just assume or say that it's just because of my religion. It's not because of my religion at all. You know, mm-hmm. and she's explained to me that it is a moral sense of what life is and how precious it is, and I can trace that back through, just her being my mom, and and the way that she, you know, other people and and the sanctity of life and how much it matters. It's it matters a lot. It's everything. It's at the heart of everything. So for her, uh, a lot sort of begins and ends with abortion, and it's one of those things where. You know, it's pretty clear Democrats are mostly they're pretty much all pro-choice. That's the platform. And Republicans are not. And so mm-hmm. Trump came around and he was the Republican. That's it. Like my mom's not gonna vote for a murderer. She's not gonna vote for Hillary Clinton. She's not gonna vote for Joe Biden because because they believe that this abortion issue is something different than what she believes it is, and mm-hmm. it's it's intolerable to her, right? And I've spent a lot of time kind of in that. Uh, in in more pro-life spaces, and it's, again, it's like, oh, it just breaks your heart because when when you really sit in that way of looking at it, abortion is genocide. And like the, how, how could anything be worse? So so that's that that drives a lot of um, of where my mom begins. But she is she is actually conservative, right? So there's a lot of policies and things on the Republican Party that she's always been for. But I think that abortion really locks, locks her in, in a big way. Um, For my dad, I talk a bit in the book about immigration, because, uh, you know, I remember being kind of shocked a bit at how little he seemed to me, little it it appeared that he empathized with Mexican immigrants who crossed the border sometimes illegally. You know, we were Mexican immigrants. We crossed the border legally um, through all these things. What's, what's the deal, dad, right? Like, you brought me and my brother um, to the United States because you knew it was gonna be a better experience. He worked super hard. He was a computer engineer. Um, it was a dream come true for him to be able to move here and bring us. So, so what's going on there? And the stories that, that came out were absolutely fascinating. I tell one in the book about him growing up watching his father's friends Mock his father for paying his taxes on time. Mexico is a country where you can get away with a lot if you're in the upper middle class. Middle class, you can do it. It's 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 more corrupt. We know you know we know this. Um, And my dad, ever since he was young, you know, he grew up with the sense of watching his father follow the rules on principle was really important to him. Just that's what he wanted to do too. And you know, he, he worked to get what he got. Uh, he's told me about the summer that he worked like super hard just to buy a calculator and what it meant to him. And so so he looked at the United States as a country that enforces its laws and that that's the way it should be. Uh, and so with immigration, he just doesn't have a lot of room for, no, like th- there's these laws and, and the U.S. needs to uphold them. And he just doesn't like how it's been a bit wishy-washy with that stuff. Um, but... But i will say too that the in a lot of ways the larger thing for him really was he he has had such little respect for the way that politics has been done and he has seen all politicians as mostly speaking from two sides of their mouth like spinning and lying all the time like he sees all Mm -hmm. politics as a big lie right people talk about like but trump lies all the time it's like to my dad, all politicians lie all the time. It's just a different way of right. lying. It's But yeah. it's still extremely, and at least for my dad, at least Trump says what he means in, you know, that like, you don't, you know exactly where he stands. He's not yeah. trying to game game it. He's being authentic. And that's the thing that's hard for liberals to admit is like, Trump is authentic. You know where he stands. Um, he doesn't play the game. And my dad, yeah. Another thing I'll say about my dad is, like, he really loves um, TV shows and movies. And he and my mom watch so many movies, they forget what they've watched. And they'll, like, put something on Netflix and be like, oh, God, I saw this. And like,
2: anyway, <laughs> but, um,
1: but uh, one of his favorite shows is House, um, which mm-hmm. is a show about it's this incredible diagnostic uh, ER doctor who can save people's lives and figure out what's wrong with them when no one else can. But in the show, he's also a severe a-hole and jerk. And just a, like not the best person and and does not give a crap about the rules. So how is this for a contradiction, right? Doesn't give a crap about the rules, but, but gets things done and serves his patience um, no matter what. And just he doesn't care what other kinds of relationship casualties are in his way. And so in a contradictory way, my dad also really admires that. And that's mm-hmm. how he sees Trump being like, I'm not going to play these games. I'm going to do what I think is right no matter what. No matter what I need to, I don't care about these other people that want me to behave. I'm just going to go. So for my dad, that's also really important. He really actually admires Trump. You know, it's not like a hold hold my nose and vote for him. He admires him. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's going back to what I was saying too about traveling abroad. Um, I lived in Europe a couple times when I was younger. Uh, and I definitely think that uh, played a role in my ability to sort of understand that there are like other ways of living and other values that you can have that are exist outside of your own little bubble. And in Mm -hmm. fact, my mother, I was 12, uh, and my brother was eight. And she said, you know, like part of the reason I want to move you guys to Paris is because I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that there's other things going on in the world. Um, and, I think especially recently I've been basically traveling for a year now in Thailand and Africa and Georgia where I am now and, um, Europe, uh, different places, Turkey. And, Mm. you know, I think what's so fascinating to me and what I've seen is, um, that, you know, I, I see sort of time happening in cycles in a lot of respects Mm. and, uh, that it's not necessarily linear. And I feel like what I'm, seen while traveling is that a lot of people are actually sort of just like me, maybe on just a slightly different timeline, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, as far as even like, you know, modernity or civilization is concerned, you know, as as far as um, like being in Africa, for example, you know, I tend to like romanticize mm-hmm. hunter gatherer communities and tribal communities and like pastoralists and stuff. Um, but it's like, I don't take into account that like they're on their own timeline and they're having their own journey. And for them, modernity and civilization is really exciting. You know, like that's what they want. They want more of that. And I'm like, oh, I've been there, done that. Like, I'd like to go back to what you're doing, you know, but why is any one of those opinions or places on the timeline any more like valuable or worthy of existing than the other? Right. Um, but yeah, I also, I don't know. I think there's this Uh, which I I feel like I hear in your description of your parents where like I'm in Georgia right now and um, they had a civil war extremely recently and Mm -hmm. I was in Spain and there's also people who are in Spain who are still alive who are uh, alive for the civil war and I feel like this is something that we've forgotten in America like the civil war happened you know (laughs)
1: <laughs> a while ago. It's in our textbooks, that's it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we, it's like while these other uh, countries are maybe not, are, are far closer to that level of division than we are, mm-hmm. they're reveling in the freedom and they're still happy and excited about the fact that they're no longer fighting with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that's, I don't know, such an interesting perspective and like for people in Georgia like the other day I was like what is that noise and I look outside and the buildings are lit up red white and blue and they're celebrating the fourth of July because they like value America and its freedoms because that's what we stand for um so yeah I don't know it's just a a, the the cultural thing as well I think like coming from other cultures like your parents did
1: like how I mean, what what you're doing is kind of like the macro of, yeah. of what we're talking about doing within the country is, is yeah, leaving the country and, and understanding that a lot of the things that we might think from our view within, it, this is just the way it has to be. It's like, no, it isn't. You can go to other countries, you can see societies built on different kinds of values and assumptions and to see how it works. But mm. the thing that's really standing out to me from what you said was the appreciation, the the memory of division that really hurts, that kills, yeah. um, being fresh. I studied in college 20 years ago, but in Spain. And yeah, the the adults, you know, of that generation, the, the sort of grandparents of that generation were right. under the di- t- dictatorship of Franco and were malnourished. Right. They're all really short. And I remember being like, why is everyone so short? And then their kids are so tall malnourishment (laughs) (laughs) that's what that meant you know they remember they're seeing it they remember like the scarcity and and it was awful right so i i saw in spanish uh media and i was paying attention this like raw kind of honesty about you know this is the left-wing newspaper this is the right-wing newspaper this is the centrist newspaper and i couldn't believe in madrid how much citizens actually knew about what was going on in local politics and were yeah like Democracy was something to really, really hold on tight to because they remember. They remember how things slipped. I was in a cab with someone from uh, the driver was from the Dominican Republic, down in Florida at a book event a couple months ago, and he and I had an amazing conversation because he was telling me about, you know, his kids and how like the leader, you know, all these assassinations and, and murders and horrible things, and he and I connected on man these these like americans who are born here have no idea how good we have it they have no idea you know you don't have to go that far outside of this country for things to be you know you think we're divided yeah we are divided but we're divided like up here psychologically right we're still holding it together in terms of actual violence (laughs) and so So there is, I, I will say, for now, but like <laughs> yeah. there, there is a thing about the immigrant experience that, that I do, you know, or, or people who have traveled, people who are from other places and can give us this perspective. Because I do think that something that would really help us all is, is to not just think about the problems, but want to protect and preserve the things that we've actually got right, that we've really figured yeah. out the things that are beautiful about our society, including the fact that we can deliberate and fight at this visceral level about ideas at all. You know, because yeah. you Georgia, Turkey, like I know, I know like amazing Turkish journalists who feared for their lives. Um yeah. or Poland. I mean, it's it's all you cannot even talk about ideas in those places. So here we're talking about ideas to like a really reckless degree. But but okay, like, but yeah. at least at least we're honest, and that's where my hope ultimately comes from is we can be honest. Let's make sure we can all be honest and candid and put the concerns on the table. We have to start there. It's a lot harder these days because of the revolution in expression and because of the power of identity. We've, we've, we've raised the difficulty level here, but we can raise other things too, including like a deep-seated appreciation for what's working. And by the way, that is one of the things that um, many conservatives I've talked to, it's one of their biggest frustrations about how liberals tend to talk about America. Like on, mm. on a conservative podcast, I was, you know, once asked, like, what can we do to have liberals love America again? Like, why don't they love it? What's going on? And of course, like, I love America. Liberals love America. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about it. We don't. Yeah. We focus on the problems. So, of course, conservatives are like, goodness, do you even care, like, about some of these things? Um, and I think that's actually something to work on, Is is how we how we love what holds us together. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and even difference and diversity being one of them. I mean, the fact that like we could think that the quote solution to our problems is that we all agree about everything <laughs> is Such a like, fantasy. I mean, s- same on the, on a personal level, right? Like if everyone agrees about anything, like isn't how we move forward through challenge and difference and, seeing things from other people's perspective as a mode by which to grow
1: (laughs) it's always been that like that that is you know say what you will about the founding fathers and all the problems of that part of society sure but like they had that right you know like they they built this isn't my native country right but i but i love the way that america was built to to preserve and protect that the liberal marketplace of ideas, technically, right? Where you yeah. have to allow people to say what they mean and to have that voice. Um, and yeah, I mean, when I look at some of the reactions we have to our division and the certainty we have about people on the other side, what I see is us marching toward authoritarianism. It's, you know, we, we say that it's the politicians that are bringing us in these extreme radical, it is, I mean, in part, sure. Like, but yeah. but but we are having this, these ridiculous reactions to each other too. You know, yeah. the more that we think that a challenging idea is going to harm us, the more that we can justify putting up walls against ideas. Yeah. And the more that we put up walls against ideas, the less we are who we're supposed to be. Um, yeah. So that comes back to what you were saying about the discomfort. Like, yeah. this is part of the package, yo. Like yeah. I, I'm, you know, it, it'll, it'll hurt a little, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. We can look at this explore in you know, an exploring way and less of a threatening way.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and to be honest, like I consider myself liberal and a leftist, and yet I actually fear the wrath of those in my own quote party or group than yeah. the opposing party or group, which is not a good place to be mm-hmm. uh when you want to. I mean, I think that's a big issue on the left is that like, I think a lot of us do feel alienated from the group <laughs> in yeah. a way that I feel like a lot of people on the right, maybe this is a an assumption that's not correct on my part, but like, I don't feel like we're very proud to be on the left necessarily. I think there's a lot of us that feel alienated. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. There's been a lot of social research about, you know, the exhausted majority, how the, you know, it's like 8% on one side and 6% on the other of partisans that are the by far the most vocal and seem to have set the dialogue. <laughs> Everybody yeah. else is like, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. Like, I actually want to entertain these ideas in different ways. Yeah. And we're not finding a way into that, right? Uh, so, yeah, that's part of the, that is absolutely part of the issue. And I think that this, the alienation is very real. And I think it's going to show up in our elections in some interesting and surprising ways. But I,
0: don't yeah. know. I see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I, i, I I've literally had people who I reached out to to be in my podcast about some sort of like random non-political issue, go back, clearly like look through the podcast that mm. I've put out and say like, no, your values don't align with mine. Yeah. So I'm not going to come on your podcast no. to be interviewed. It's just like, oh my wait a second, what? Yeah, I know. Um, like, and since, since when, I don't know. I mean, that's just such a myth too, that there's anybody in the world who agrees with us a hundred percent.
1: Yeah. No. And, 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 why would we, if you really sit and think about it, why would we want that? Yeah, like it, yeah, it doesn't so even make boring. sense. Like wh- yeah. one of the most interesting paradoxes of these times for me is that on the one hand, there's this wonderful consensus building, uh, you know, sometimes recklessly applied, but a wonderful consensus building uh, around the, div- the strength of diversity. You know, obviously, it's important. Obviously, like, it makes us awesome as Americans. Obviously, we have to make sure we see all of the different shades. You know, we think about race, we think about gender, we think about sexuality. Like, these are the things that are on stage, you know, particularly the left yeah. is really celebrating all this stuff and, like, elevating voices. Let's go, right? And, and we get it, like, at, at the baseline is, like, Of course, diversity is strength. You want these different experiences. You want to make sure that everyone's heard no matter up and down the power scale, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yet when it comes to ideas, mm -mm. no, there, that's where diversity is not a strength. Um, we need to be really certain. Um, you know, we're, and I get it. We're so afraid, you know, because, because of course, like there is a line, right? Like, over at Nazi land, no, we don't want to suddenly make a culture that, you know, celebrates and elevates or whatever ideas that are clearly very deviant, clearly very harmful. So the, the tricky part is where, where do you draw the line? And the more yeah. afraid people are, the more they want to draw the line, I think, in places that are just way too restrictive, um, you yeah. And But but the more power they get, the more that they're able to influence like tech platforms or political platforms or whatever to do just that. And so that's the piece that I'm really grateful that in America, nobody actually can press that button and set that line for everybody in an authoritarian way. Thank goodness. That remains an open debate. Um, but yeah, it's like, wow, diversity is strength, but not here and not here and not here. And don't tell me about that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's evil. So I don't want to hear about it like wait a minute like that's if we're not it, it like with abortion and with guns people are actually in very different places here not because they're evil or crazy or ignorant but because they have different lives and different paths um and you want you know it's like it's like good sort of mixed up dna you want the mixed up dna of people's intuitions about what is right and wrong to always be be like mixing and mixing and mixing and mixing so So yeah, it's, it's really not a good thing when you, when you don't allow that mixing to happen in your own life. Yeah.
0: What might you say to someone? I imagine you get this reaction sometimes from people who are like, yeah, this sounds really great. Curiosity questions, conversations, but like, these are issues that are affecting my life right now in really profound ways. Like, how can you expect me to be like calm or nuanced about them? Like, what are, what might be your sort of practical advice in that case where someone's like really freaking out potentially rightfully so about an issue that affects them, um, like what to do.
1: It goes back to something you were, you were hinting at, which is that we really do each have our own journey. And I think that the absolutely silly way to, you know, to do this is to have expectations of everyone doing the same thing. Um, so what I think is what I think actually works is everyone getting one step more curious from wherever they are. And that includes if you if you are in a place where mm-mm, you know, this is, I it hurts so much. You know, I have family members who think I shouldn't exist, don't accept me for who I am, like in these ways. Um, and I know that it is healthier for me to declare my independence and build something over here and not interact in any way. There, there are different parts of this, you know, stages that people are in, and sometimes that is the healthy stage. But mm-hmm. even then, the way that you make sure that you are not creeping toward more blindness and making your, your world smaller out of out of turn, right, um, is still to become one click more curious. So the simplest step that is still a progress is you don't want to have any conversations with anyone, you know, where your skin is in the game and you're vulnerable. It could be really cool, don't. Next time you see an article where that's about this issue and it's somebody who disagrees with you, but you know that it's a popular, it's a popular stance, you know, and what you want to do is just kind of rage against that article existing or read the article just to see why it's so terrible, right? Instead, (laughs) click on the article and read it and ask yourself, what is the deep down, honest concern that a good human has here. What is it? And make that the question that you read that article with. Nobody has to know. Nobody has to know. You don't have to betray your group or your own confidence in your own beliefs or identities. Nobody's asking you to let go of your convictions. But can you listen? Can you listen generously to one per, to somebody's perspective? And that is a way to to, to work up the muscle. And that is enough that is enough you do not you do not have to talk to a nazi tomorrow uh sort of the line that's come out of this like that it's not no one's asking that some people can do it they're very special people don't (laughs) in a very special place but we're we're all on this journey in very different places and there is no sanctimoniousness uh there's no sanctimoniousness that makes any sense about this. Like, I'm so, I'm so amazing. I can have so many conversations that cause difference. It's like, no man, like that's not what this is about. Yeah. That's not what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. I have to
0: say, I think one of my favorite parts of your book was that um, anecdote that you put in, I think about the pastor asking, like, do I have to, mm-hmm. like, do you want me to have a conversation with the devil or something or sympathize yeah. with the
1: devil? Should I bridge with the devil? <laughs> And, yeah. and John Powell, who's this leader in the bridging movement, says, maybe don't start there. You know, John, John Powell talks about short bridges and long bridges. Because we're so afraid, a lot of people's challenges to this kind of approach is, is exactly that. You want me to talk to a Nazi tomorrow? You want me to bridge with the devil? No, don't start there. We go to the scariest thing because we don't want to do it. It's a straw man. That's what we do when we don't want to do things. We think of the scariest thing and argue why we shouldn't do it. And that's it. Case closed. And it's like, no, dude. So, so yeah, build the short bridges. Uh, and John Powell says, so yeah, you, you know, should I bridge with the devil? Maybe don't start there. Do short bridges, you know, th- things that are ways that people are different from you in in easier ways, you know, that you can see yourself. And then after a while, you might ask yourself, who am I calling the devil? Yeah. And that's the real transformation, you know? Yeah, The devil is not people who voted for Trump for for the liberals who might assume that. But no, that's not the devil.
0: Do you think about scale at all with Mm -hmm. this? Um, Like, have we gotten we as in the world, but also (laughs) let's say the culture, there are so many different people with so many different interests and needs Mm -hmm. um, that we can't possibly represent all of them fairly. Like, is Mm -hmm. there a solution within the context of, you know, the sort of modern way that we organize Mm -hmm. around a country as opposed to like a tribe of 150 people where it might be a little bit easier?
1: What a great question. Oh my gosh. No, I don't think there is one solution for all time on that. I remember reading the book, uh, Thomas More's Utopia, like this classic old book, Mm. you know, densely written, but it imagines us all having figured this out. But this is the thing. When I I think of the phrase, a more perfect union, that's what I think of. It's a pursuit. Never going to get there. Um, And the way that I think we do this right is to always be vigilant uh, and always notice not just the health of our institutions not just how many people are voting but also the health of our communication i think that's the thing that's become really fresh and raw in the last 20 years and 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 whether we are colliding with each other and where is our trust building happening um and the civic the civic structures will follow they 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 will i think that it's already a goddamn miracle <laughs> that society has been built at this level of sophistication. So yeah, how to listen to everybody is, is maybe my favorite thing about the angst that we're fi- feeling right now, um, as, particularly on the left. It's this, mm. it's this panicked angst about, but we don't, we're not taking care of everyone. Why? Why are we missing you know, these people and those people and what's going on? And I think that is such a beautiful thing to be angsty about. Uh, and it's going to lead us to a good place. It can be reckless, but we can correct for that. And that's what's happening. So I have a lot of trust in just this happening as it will. I think that we already have the ingredients. We already care. We already know what's ultimately more important. And we've been kind of manipulated psychologically, I think. um, And and not by malevolent players, but just by an attention economy that is what it is. Uh, But we're becoming more aware of it. And... And good things are happening, so so yeah, I ultimately think like we're on our way, we are on our way, yeah,
0: yeah, I was gonna ask if what your sort of level of hope or optimism is around <laughs> the the division and the political system overall. I feel like you are in a unique place where you are and have been and are have been dedicating yourself to interacting with people on all sides mm-hmm. of the table, and I wonder if that really does allow you to feel less afraid because i feel yes. like a lot of people are freaking out yes. um and saying things like i mean i've said it too like things feel so bad sometimes that i don't know how they would get better without getting worse first or things right. would need to totally collapse um so i i'd love to hear where you are with that based on what you yeah. experience on a daily basis yeah
1: i mean you're absolutely right i think maybe the it, it appears to me I can't know without knowing everyone else's heart, right, but it appears to me mm. that one of the real benefits uh, of of what I've chosen to do these these last several years is exactly that i I have access to a way to be less afraid. So the day that Roe v Wade got overturned, I called my mom um, because we always check in on each other on this on this issue in a lot of ways. I just had to call her, and I didn't expect it, but I ended up crying uh, on the phone and, you know, she was just, you know, nothing, nothing but empathetic and a good listener, uh, about it. And, and I already understand her views, you know, I wasn't there to fight with her at all. That wasn't the point. Um, but I, but I did want to connect with someone who was happy about what happened and like really, really happy, you know, for my mom, this is, this is decades in the making. This is amazing. Um, And what was really cool was, you know, after we had a good cry, I guess, or I had a good cry, um, you know, we, we, we talked about some of the nuances in it and what's going on with the Supreme court and the worries about other, you know, rights or, or rights that might be taken away. Cause for my mom and for the pro-life movement, this is not necessarily like a right, the, the right to abortion. They think of it differently. Right. Anyway. Um, yeah. And we found a lot of common ground, um, We found a lot of common ground like you know she she and i both like want nothing taken away in terms of the right for gay people to marry for example oh my gosh that'd be terrible like she didn't understand i think the way i did because because i've been reporting on the issue how how proximate that actually could be and she she was upset by that right and so anyway we we connected we really kind of we we saw that and i and i hung up remembering how many really good people are on both sides of this and how much we really need to get together creatively and figure out what we can do um, and, and all of that. So, so yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And so with almost any issue, um, if, if something's coming down the pipe and it's like, disaster, you know? <laughs> and then, but I can, I can talk to somebody who doesn't see it as a disaster and realize that they're right too. I may not agree with them, but from their perspective, they're right. And so that does bring the temperature way down. It brings the volume way down for me. And it brings me closer to a place where I can see this is the mix. This is the mix of America at work. This is the mix, like with guns, right? We've had these horrible mass shootings. People see that. People on all sides of the gun debate see that and that we have to do something. The question is what do we do and we are doing something there's a bipartisan gun bill right but but we focus i don't know like either side will focus on the disaster without seeing that there's stuff afoot and that if we can put more of our energy toward that creative building um a a lot of amazing things can happen so so yeah that gives me a lot of hope i think that we are all such an incredibly capable society It's awesome. We have so much wisdom, you know, forget like book smarts. We have so much wisdom built up and we're communicating and we're getting to know each other. You know, the, the way I know that we win this is if a hundred percent of our potential is seen in our output, we get a hundred percent output. Now I think we have like a hundred percent potential. We get like 5% output because 95% is bullcrap. Everything that like is in our way, all the ways that we're putting energy into the wrong things. So, you know, I'm looking to like political leaders and I'm looking to the media, but mostly I'm looking to ordinary people, you know, to to show that we've had enough. We've had enough of of such dysfunction. We don't deserve it. We're better than this.
0: Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Well, I think that's a wonderful, uplifting place to end the conversation. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I always ask everyone when I remember, uh, we have a book club that we do for my podcast. And so I asked the guests if they could recommend a book or two that was really meaningful Mm -hmm. and transformational to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And we pick among these books often to discuss among the group and then where people can find you and learn more about you and your book.
1: Okay, cool. So the book recommendation, does it need to be a modern book or can it be an old book? Anything.
0: Okay. Just something that's like really meaningful
1: to you. Yeah. Absolutely transformational to me is the collected essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, a writer from the 1800s. Uh, self-reliance and the American scholar changed my life. Uh, awesome. There's all his essays are just like most timeless, incredible wisdom. Uh, ties into a lot of what we've been talking about. And then people can find my book at uh, reclaimcuriosity.com. That's the website. And um, you know your favorite indie bookseller or uh you know request it at your library um see where you can get it but but yeah it's i never thought of it that way how to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times and you can find me at monique guzman on twitter uh, and instagram awesome thanks so much again thank you this was this was fun
0: Hello, everybody. Me again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation with Moni. Highly recommend her book. I never thought of it that way. I think the work she's doing is so important, if I haven't made that abundantly clear thus far. Um, again, if you would like to support the podcast, uh, whether financially or otherwise, you can go to Anya com. Sign up. You can get emails every time I put out a new podcast episode, get access to all of the writing that I put out, and also get an email when I send that stuff out. Comment on all the posts. I do some open threads as well. We just had one recently where I opened up the floor for all of you to discuss what it means to have a home and what belonging means, especially when I think so many of us uh, are sort of trying to figure out where home exists, at least physically and tangibly and feeling such an incredible yearning and longing for that, but not really knowing how to find it or where to find it or where to go. Um, So I open up lots of different things uh, for discussion among the group, the book club. I know I keep saying this, but it is coming back. It's coming back in like a really substantial way. (laughs) Um, And I'm not going to provide too much more information about that, but I think really in the next week or two weeks, I'm going to be announcing that on Substack. I am going to play you out today with a song called Going Home. Uh, the artist is Auskir, and I picked this song for so many reasons. One, because I'm going home, quote unquote, whatever that means. I don't really have a home. The closest thing I have to a home is some land and a van with a bed in it, <laughs> um, But I am going there. I'm going to those places. I'm going to see people in the U.S. that I have not seen uh, for basically a year. I have not been on U.S. soil since November um, and was gone from the U.S. two months prior to that as well in Guatemala. So it's been a long time. And this trip has sort of like, you know, you talk about when you're in a relationship and like distance makes the heart grow fonder. I embarrassingly have to admit that distance from the U.S. has made me grow fonder of it, which is not to say that I still think it's ridiculous in so many different ways. It's not to say that I don't think there are problems. There are so many problems and there are probably so many more coming, but I also feel grateful for the opportunity to be able to appreciate what I have and to feel more connected to what I have, whether that's the people that I miss or the land that I miss, or the experiences that I've had in that place that I miss, including all of the complexities and including all of the imperfections. I feel that I miss it. I do feel nostalgic, and I am really looking forward to going back. I don't know if that's where I'll end up landing. I don't know what's going to happen in the country, but I feel grateful. It's a very complex form of gratitude. (laughs) As gratitude should be, it's full of both joy and grief and happiness and sadness and endless paradox and nuance, but I'm grateful to be going back and to be able to experience so many different people and so many different cultures, as I think this podcast episode in and of itself exemplified, that have made me feel really grateful for home and the feeling of home and the meaning of home whatever that is, wherever you find it, with whatever people in whatever place. Thank you so much for being here. As always, I appreciate all of you and I'm looking forward to meeting more of you soon. Okay.